0: Our lecture next week on the sixth of April is Lottie Hellinger from the British Library speaking on a book in fifteenth century England. And on the thirteenth of April, Kathleen Moult of the School of Library uh, Service Faculty uh, speaking on research library. On the twentieth, Michael Bullock, who participated in the the signing of the Hymn's book in preparation for its recent facsimile, Speaking on the Saints. And on the 27th of April, Andrew Brown from the Cambridge University Press presenting meditations on the, the present state of academic publishing. Our lecturer this evening is David McKittrick, who has spoken here, I'm happy to say, many times before. He's now librarian of Trinity College, Cambridge, speaking on for Jeffrey Cain. It's a great, great pleasure to have him here, as always.
1: Thank you very much, Harry. As usual, it's a great pleasure to be here, and enormous fun to see so many friends again. I want to take you straight into the slides. Um, I suppose to... ...leave you in the dark for uh, about 20 minutes or so, and then give you some daylight to recover, you know, some evening light, and then take you back into the dark to have a final nap. Geoffrey Cain was born a hundred years ago last Wednesday. He died five years ago. This was taken in his 90s. His name is a household one in bibliographical circles. In literary ones, no less so as the editor of the most widely available text of William Blake. In art history, as an authority on Blake, and as a long-serving trustee of the National Portrait Gallery in London. But, and it's very important to remember this in the next hour, he always remained very much attached to surgery and claimed convincingly to have had most satisfaction in his career as a surgeon. Where his work on breast cancer, on blood transfusion, myasthenia gravis, and even quite ordinary ruptures brought him face face to face with problems of a very different nature and, for years, brought him into conflict with members of his profession. One of the great benefits of growing old for him was to see himself justified forty years after the event. He and his elder brother, the economist John Maynard Keynes, were two of the greatest book collectors in England this century, though his brother Maynard wrote no bibliographies Maynard's books were bequeathed, in the end, to King's College in Cambridge. Geoffrey's are now in the University Library, and no doubt, one day, someone will compare these two rival collections in some detail. Tonight, however, I propose to concentrate on Geoffrey, and to approach it with four principal questions in mind. First of all, faced with a collection in the University Library of some seven or 8,000 books, How was it put together, and in what order? How did his mind work? Secondly, what is the relationship of this collection to the bibliographies, bearing in mind, first of all, that for much of his life, Geoffrey was constantly improving his collection, trading off books through the auction houses and so on. And secondly, that in many instances, the Cambridge University Library copies were hardly less important to him than his own on his library shelves. Then I want to begin to examine Geoffrey's particular influence on bibliography and on bibliographical description, so far as one can in a public lecture, without going into the kind of detail that is desirable but is almost impossible in delivered speech. And then finally, I want to touch on his influence as a bibliographer or a collector on 20th century trends in the antiquarian book trade, and inescapably therefore, on Library Acquisition Policies. Now I'll show you next the picture of Cambridge University Library, the building which was abandoned only in 1934. This is where most of his work was done when he was not at home, surrounded by his own books. But rather than attempt to span the whole of a career that went through seven decades, I propose to concentrate on his youth, This is a picture taken in 1910 of the Cambridge Natural Sciences Club, and there is Geoffrey sitting in the middle, as the chairman. And I want to look particularly at two projects. I will however also have something to say, more by way of promise than of exposition, about some of his later activities insofar as they illuminate this early period. It became increasingly clear to Geoffrey's friends, and was certainly very clear by 1910. It became clear to the reviewers later on that Geoffrey approached each of his major bibliographies with a long campaign. He alluded to some of these campaigns himself, for example in the preface to the bibliography of Sir Thomas Brown, published in 1924, where he wrote of it having been first published Projected and the work begun at Cambridge 16 years ago, or in that to John Evelyn, published in 1937, where he attributed the book's origins to the early months of the First World War. For Geoffrey, this necessarily long gestation, the period of research accompanied by a culling of booksellers' catalogues and an ever increasing correspondence, came to imply also inescapably a program of publication with which not everyone who sought final perfection before being satisfied enough to per- pass their own book for press could agree. His John Donne was the first of four editions. William Blake was revised with the help of Ed Wolfe II in 1953. A new edition of Thomas Brown was published in 1968. This implied a combination of activity with impatience, which Edmund Gosse, for one didn't entirely appreciate or did he perhaps appreciate it all too well when he reviewed Thomas Brown in 1924. And Goss said, of all intellectual occupations, bibliography, properly conducted, is the most leisurely. Geoffrey was deliberately sparing of bibliophilic tales in his autobiography, The Gates of Memory. He believed that readers would find a surface of these stories boring or over boastful, but there are plenty of clues to his life as a collector before the First World War, though sometimes far too little detail. He read John Donne with his school contemporary Rupert Brooke. He was introduced with his friend Cosmo Gordon to Thomas Brown by Charles Sale of Cambridge University Library, whose edition of the collected works appeared in 1908. Later on, of course, he was to be much influenced by William Osler. Of Blake, he recalled, as we shall find out later, that his first memory was of the plates to the Book of Job in a Trinity Street shop window in Cambridge. The roots, of course, were deeper than that. And I want to go back now. This is a list of the Baskerville Club, um, as it appears in the front of Geoffrey's bibliography of... John Dunn, published at the beginning of the First World War. Edited by the President, Francis Jenkinson, who was also Cambridge University librarian. This was Geoffrey's first book, published by the Baskerville Club, a society which, by 1914, consisted, I think, of 37 people. It had been founded by a couple of people in October 1903. Charles Sale, like Geoffrey, an old rugbyman, Um, now a bachelor approaching 40 who after a not wholly successful literary sally had spent four years cataloguing and studying the old library of st john's college before in 1894 he embarked on what was to have become a union catalogue of pre-1641 english books in cambridge libraries in 1903 charles sale saw published the third volume of what was to prove to be the only part to be completed of this project, that of the University Library. Sales work as a bibliographer, and here he is at the bottom of the list of members of the Club in 1903, has now largely been subsumed, of course, into the short title catalogue published in 1926. But in his day, he had a great influence on people like Sir Walter, um, Sir Walter Gregg. Charles Sale, and another member of the club, Arthur Cole, another book collector, elected a member of the University Library staff as the first secretary. By the end of the year, 1903, they'd been enjoin- joined by, amongst others, John Maynard Keynes, Geoffrey's elder brother the club began very much as a social arrangement, meeting for breakfast in college, and in Salesback Garden in Trumpington Street when it was a good morning. And they, of course, met to discuss Baskerville. And with an ease that now seems extraordinary, the so-called preliminary proofs of the hand list of Baskerville's books were revised at the very first formal meeting, and the volume was published the following summer. Apart from the Baskerville Handlist, the club seems to have considered itself as a publishing society almost as an afterthought. Certainly there was nothing in the rules to say that it should be in 1903. Nothing was actually put into the rules until 1913, when it was decided for the first time that the club's main object should be the encouragement of bibliographical studies by publication and otherwise. By that time, it's In retrospect, it seems clear that the rule was introduced to accommodate Geoffrey Keynes. His bibliography of Dunn was well advanced. Although the club considered a catalogue of incunables in and round the cathedral town of Norwich, it considered a calendar and selections from Henry Bradshaw's papers, it considered a bibliography of Thomas Grey, it considered the catalogue of the parish library Cartmel in Lancashire. Nothing had appeared. The club had heard papers on, of course, Baskerville, but also on Bodoni by E.P. Goldschmidt, the London bookseller, or the man who became a London bookseller. And from February 1908 until February 1913, the minute book of the society records no activity whatsoever. It was, however, finally revived in February 1913 with a clear wish to introduce new members of the university into book collecting circles and to encourage younger people in Cambridge. Now, in view of the extent to which some of Geoffrey's bibliographies have become become a major influence on work this century, and have become models either to be followed or to be avoided, it's of some interest to examine their gestation, and this is where the records of the society are of crucial interest. The Baskerville Club Minute Book is a useful starting point. On the 23rd of February, 1913, Geoffrey offered his bibliography of Dunn, incidentally before he'd even been elected to the club, and the club secretary, Bartholomew, had obtained already a quotation from the university press. There was clearly some some collusion going on. The Minutes. After some deliberation and examination of the manuscript of the bibliography, Mr. Gaisley moved, he was subsequently Librarian of the Foreign Office, that the Council accept Mr. Keynes's offer and that his bibliography of the writings of John Donne be printed as the Club's second publication. Dr. W. M. Fletcher, physiologist, and almost certainly a friend of Jeffrey's, seconded the motion, which was carried unanimously. It was further decided that Mr. John Maynard Keynes and the Secretary, Bartholomew, should confer with the author as to the details of arrangement and production, and that the possibility of shortening some entries should be borne in mind. What exactly was meant by this rather opaque minute is clear from a letter to Geoffrey from Bartholomew, written two days later. Bartholomew had caused the University Press at Cambridge to set a specimen page using his own bibliography of Richard Bentley, published in 1908, as a guide as to general style. Apart from general remarks as to page layout, there were also suggestions as to the description. This is from the 1914 edition of the bibliography. Rect and verse seem not to be liked, though I personally see no objection. A and B, much preferred by the meeting. This was an innovation in that not only Bartholomew, but also his mentor G.J. Gray of Cambridge, as well as Thomas James Wise, even in his 1913 Bibliography of Coleridge, were all using reverse. In Bartholomew's following sentence, there may be the germ of what was to become a long debate. It was further suggested that the manuscript might be somewhat shortened by leaving out the full titles of certain editions of works which agree exactly with certain other editions of the same work. Having decided on the book, Geoffrey and the club proceeded together with some caution. Bartholomew, on the screen now, member of the University Library staff, and looking out from his window, uh, probably towards the Senate House, those of you who have been to Cambridge will remember there's a green sward in front of the old library only was shy of bibliographical formulae, or algebra, as he called it, but was alert to write, the algebra in the enclosed wants very careful checking. The same sort of ambiguity occurred in nearly every entry. In September, referring probably to the entry for the 1626 Ignatius' conclave, he, in conclave, he had to upbraid Geoffrey yet again. No use being in a fume if you want to be a successful scientific bibliographer. It may pay in medicine, but I doubt it. I disagree with you entirely that G6 by itself obviously means that G6B is blank. G6B fortunately won. Bartholomew ended his letter with an invitation to go for a walk the following weekend, and the two men became ever firmer friends. But these were never lessons that Geoffrey learnt very comfortably. By February 1914, they were discussing the title page, set finally with a panache entirely lacking in other Cambridge University Press books of this period. By his own estimate, Geoffrey's editions, made made in the course of 1913, had added one-tenth to the bulk, despite the uh, minute of the club a few months earlier. And despite this, despite his superior paper, Despite the change in format from small quarto, that used by Bartholomew for his Bentley, to large quarto, the club felt that it had been overcharged by the press. Geoffrey, however, received his copy of the book at Versailles early in 1915. The book broke new ground in several ways. Most obviously in its large quarto format, which provided ample room for the reproductions of title pages, which became a feature bibliographies. The title trans- transcriptions could be, and always were, idiosyncratic, not just because of the Baskerville's fears as to bulk. Where the words and the spelling were carefully copied, no notice was taken of capitalisation, and the ligatures were reproduced only insofar as the Cambridge University Press's Caslon font allowed. Long S was used regularly. Even in his 90s, Geoffrey was impatient of quasi-facsimile transcription, though he did at least use it in his Blake bibliography to some extent, and he could never be persuaded to indicate line endings with the usual vertical slash introduced by Edward Capel in the 18th century and used in Cambridge by G.J. Gray as recently as 1907 in his bibliography of Isaac Newton. In a strange way, even in 1914, ahead of his time, Geoffrey was beginning to perceive the superiority of illustration good, <laughs> over the paraphernalia of quasi facsimile. That didn't, however, prevent him presenting the title pages of the 1625 first and second anniversaries entirely reset, with no caveat whatsoever. His own copy was imperfect, and here we see the, his own collection influencing directly of his books, and on these these occasions he turned instead to the Clarendon Press at Oxford, who lent their own modern typographic pastiche from Grierson's edition of Dunn, published a few years before. Subsequently, of course, the book was greatly enlarged. Collational formulae were corrected or amended to show unsigned gatherings. More illustrations were added, more copies found and noted. Documents quoted, the introductory remarks to each title rewritten. But, essentially, the book remained recognisable even in 1973. By then, the number of books recorded, dedicated to Dunn had quadrupled. And that's from one to four. The celebrated list of works in his library, uh, of um, works from John Dunn's library, had risen from 14 to 218. Geoffrey acquired his own first book from from Dunn's library just too late to get it into his book. He confined his search in libraries that those within reach, principally of course the University Library in Cambridge, and this is where you used to read rare books in 1910. He'd also been to the British Museum, to the Oxford Libraries, some but not all of the cathedrals, and one or two private libraries notably, apart from his own, that of Edmund Gosse. The only copy he recorded of the 1611 Anatomy of the World was that of the Earl of Ellesmere, now in the Huntington. With the single exception of Robert Ho's library, sold in 1911 and therefore available in the catalogue, there was no American library listed amongst the locations. Though subsequent editions were to be enriched with details of manuscripts and special copies, and a clearer pattern of rarity was eventually to emerge. It's noticeable that in 1914, Geoffrey had nevertheless established, with the help of Goss and Grierson before him, the major part of the publishing history of Dunn's work, at least for the 17th century. The reviewers were quick to compliment him and on occasion to offer extra tidbits. Among the very few to make a serious point was A.W. Pollard, who drew on McCarrough's great 1913 paper on bibliographical evidence, which Geoffrey clearly hadn't read when the book went to press, Um, to point out that the variant states of the 1633 juvenilia, either with or without one of the imprimators, were probably the result of stop-press correction. In later editions of his book, Geoffrey himself drew attention to his own mistaken attempt to establish an order of priorities among differing copies of the 1633 poems that were the result of the same phenomenon. But, even as Geoffrey searched for his next project, he continued to enrich his collection. The perfect copy of the 1633 poems was elusive, as he chased unsuccessfully after copies. Even in 1911, it was an expensive book, when he missed a copy in Newcastle for six guineas. The usual price in London was 10 to 15 pounds before the First World War, though the whole copy fetched $135 in 1911. After the war, thanks not least to Geoffrey and the bibliography, the prices increased noticeably. And Geoffrey missed the bargain in 19, uh, at 15 pounds when Francis Ed- Edwards offered a copy in exceptional contemporary condition, just the style that he most sought for, as we shall see in a few minutes. Now, Geoffrey had bought his first serious book what was to become one of the two best private collections of John Donne in the world, in March 1911, priced 12 shillings and sixpence from Der Bell, a bookseller then in Charing Cross Road. Within a few months, he had the 1648 of the the 1651 Letters from Barnard, a graduate book from Cambridge, now a bookseller in Tunbridge Wells, the 1627 Devotions, Imperfect, but in a contemporary gilt binding five shillings. Geoffrey's brother Maynard finally produced an imperfect copy of the 1633 poems. Thorpe, London, added to 15 shillings the 1610 pseudo-martyr, Dunn's first book. The guides to the literature were few. Edmund Gosse's Life and Letters, published in 1899, was the only modern authority. And this is where Geoffrey would have had to go in the University Library to look up John Dunn in the catalogue. The best modern edition, apart from Grierson's, um, since that of Grossart in 1872, was that by E. K. Chambers of 1896. The 1895 Grolier Lowell edition was not easily available in England, the only copy known to Geoffrey was in the British Museum. Grierson's edition appeared from the Clarendon Press in 1912, in other words, rather late on in Geoffrey's investigations by his standards. In his autobiography, The Gates of Memory, Geoffrey wrote of having been preached to on Dunn by Rupert Brooke. Brooke reviewed Grierson's edition anonymously in The Nation, complaining of the editor's trickishness in handling the love poems and especially the progress of the soul. Two years later, a reviewer, in the spectator this time, of Geoffrey's bibliography pointed out what had become clear. Dunn is par excellence, the poet of the younger poets of today, and this this offering to his memory will not remain unappreciated. Geoffrey's bibliography, inspired by Brooke, encouraged by Sale, formed under the guidance of Bartholomew, was his own way of responding to this generation. He discovered, on the other hand, William Blake, apparently completely independently, in 1907 or so, in his second year as an undergraduate. I was walking, this is only ten years or so before this took place, I was walking along the west side pavement of Trinity Street, on the right-hand side, passing the bookshop, now long defunct of the light of Johnson, when I happened to raise my eyes to an upper level of his window. There I saw on a shelf two prints, which immediately riveted my attention. They were quite unlike anything I'd ever seen before, and for me had a quite extraordinary quality, which has held my admiration ever since." He's writing this in his 90s. It's now impossible exactly to describe what it was in those designs, from William Blake's illustrations to the Book of Job, that had so great an effect on me. I will have some lights on, I think. Um, by the end of 1908, He'd begun what, in 1921, was to appear under the rather misleading title, simply, of a bibliography of William Blake. Though by then, it had passed through very many vicissitudes. In Cambridge, he had allies in his enthusiasm, in Sidney Cockrell, Fitzwilliam Museum, and the geneticist William Bateson, collector of William Blake and Japanese prints, quite apart from a geneticist. By March, 1909, before, in other words, he'd even turned to Dunn, Geoffrey had turned into a serious collector. I'm glad you didn't get the Satan, wrote Bateson on the 26th of March. Two in came which would be embarrassing. Um, Satan smiting Job with boils is now in the Tate Gallery. For some months, Geoffrey had to be, usually, content with the facsimiles. The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, published in 1868. Songs of Innocence and Experience, published in 1893. The collection was one of a student. And for all the great wealth which eventually accumulated on the walls, and on the shelves, on the cupboards, in an increasingly crowded house just outside Cambridge, it always remained such. It merely moved into another plane with the acquisition in 1913 of an uncoloured copy of the frontispiece to America, bought for £2.10. shillings. Blake's own annotated copy of Winkelmann's reflection on the painting and sculpture of the Greeks came from Dobell of three shillings and sixpence in 1914. Geoffrey alluded in the Gates of Memory to Gilchrist and to Swinburne, to the work of the Rossettis, and to John Sampson's edition of the lyrical poems from the Oxford Standard authors in 1905. Unknown to him, when he saw the Joba plates in the shop window in 1907, there was already a considerable industry surrounding Blake. The crowd of Blake historians increases daily, wrote Graham Robertson, another great collector, in his introduction to a new edition of Gilchrist in 1906. The book on Blake has taken the place of a five-act tragedy in the desk give every aspirant to literary honours. The sketches for Job have been exhibited at the Royal Academy in ni- 1894. The Carfax Gallery in London had held major exhibitions in 1904 and 1906. The Crew Sale in 1903 had released new supplies onto the market, albeit at prices which staggered the trade. In America, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts had held a major exhibition in 1891. The Grolia followed in 1905. By 1914, the Pringle Sale in London and the sale in New York had been interspersed with Joseph Wicksteed's study of Job of 1910 and Archibald Russell's very important account of the engravings published in 1912. It was Russell, too, who was responsible for the National Gallery exhibition in 1913 and whose 1906 edition of Blake's letters Geoffrey was eventually to displace. Geoffrey reviewed Wicksteed's book in the Cambridge Review in 1910, but he turned for help in his bibliography to Blake's editor, John Sampson. Sampson's principal inter- interests were in Roman literature, but since 1892 he's been the first librarian at Liverpool University. And among other interests, he had, in in 1905, produced the first authoritative edition of Blake's poetical works. For Geoffrey, he combined this authority with what proved to be an unjustified reputation for being tigerish and unapproachable. This is what many, many people felt about Geoffrey later on in his years. Geoffrey sent his draft bibliography of Blake to Sampson at the end of 1909, or early in 1910. Samson was encouraging but cautious. I trust, he wrote, that the enthusiasm which has carried you so far will induce you to bring your work to a happy conclusion. I take it that in its present form it is merely the roughest of rough drafts and would be considerably rewritten and rearranged before being offered to the public. Not for the last time, he recalled Henry Bradshaw, whose memory cast a long shadow over the bibliographical world of the time. Remember that Bradshaw chose a motto for himself, and incidentally for other bibliographers, Whatsoever thy hand finds to do, do it with thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. Several pages of suggestion followed this reminder. But unlike Bradshaw, whose natural instinct was to publish nothing until he considered it perfect, and who therefore published very little, Geoffrey pursued his course to a conclusion. The bibliographical questions connected with Blake were very different from those of Dunn, whom he was pursuing at the same time, and both of whom incidentally could only be pursued as his training in surgery permitted. Few of William Blake's lifetime publications have been conventional. The poetical sketches in 1783, the descriptive catalogue of 1809. And as Geoffrey came to realise, Copies of the poetical sketches themselves differed in that they contained manuscript authorial corrections, which were not identical. Of the illuminated books, Samson had tackled Songs of Innocence and of Experience, but he had restricted himself to only about half the number of extant copies finally unearthed by Geoffrey. Geoffrey was to be the first to examine, or have examined for him, every known surviving copy of these books and of the prophetic books. To this he added surveys of extant manuscripts, of Blake's engraved work, of engraved work commissioned or designed by others, of plates designed but not engraved by Blake, of books known to have belonged to Blake. Whereas in Dunn, the essence of the bibliography was a search for the common denominator of a printed edition, in Blake the differences between what were ostensibly parts of a common stock were of critical importance. The appreciation of detail in different copies of the illuminated books, printed over a long period of time and set up finally in a sequence, a chronological sequence, by Geoffrey and by his successors, could be a distraction in a description of printed editions for a man like John Donne, and may perhaps have contributed to the faulty conclusions and the over-importance attached to the press variants in Donne's 1633 poems, The Jutanilia, to which I alluded a few minutes ago. Samson's remarks in his letter of 1910 became in 1911 a full publisher's report, a copy of which Geoffrey fortunately preserved and annotated with his own comments. Samson was frank and opened up. Only in a strangely limited sense can the work be described as a bibliography of William Blake. It includes descriptions of some manuscripts, but not all. It includes descriptions of The work of other artists, which merely happened to have been engraved by Blake, while excluding the greater portion of his own artistic work. At this stage, Geoffrey assumed that Russell, whose work on the plates was published in 1912, would provide for the last. But he could only agree wholeheartedly with Sampson's stress on the recording of the locations of copies. A very serious omission in Mr. Keynes's bibliography is his failure in the case of original editions of Blake's works or of unique or rare reprints to record the public or private libraries in which copies of these are to be found. If the bibliography is to be of any service to the reader, this information should certainly be given. Of Jerusalem, Mr. Kane says this work is usually uncolored. As though copies in this state might be found on any bookstall, one would like to know precisely how many copies of Jerusalem or of the other prophetic books are known to Mr. Keynes. and in what public library or the by the courtesy of what private owner they may be consulted. The view of the care with which Geoffrey eventually recorded individual copies, with their provenances and current locations, is not easy now to imagine how much briefer his original intentions were, and how devastating an effect Samson's suggestions were to have on subsequent study. There was more room for argument over Sampson's disagreement with Geoffrey's arrangement of his book, but not with his bibliographical descriptions. Mr. Keynes's descriptions of books show throughout a lack of familiarity with the methods of exact bibliography, and in this regard he might be advised to study the best models. The model which was actually suggested, but I haven't had a look, look at yet, is the bibliography of Andrew Fletcher of Too*. He seems rather an unlikely person to compare with William Blake. The collections are, collations are confusing and rarely include the choir sequence, which is the only true guide to the completeness of a printed book. Where moreover this has been attempted, it is inaccurate. Such an impossible collation as that given the Blake's descriptive catalog A3, B2F6, G3 equals 36 leaves, is enough to make Bradshaw turn in his grave. Mr. Keynes contested this for himself by trying to fold a sheet of paper into three leaves. I can only guess, says Sampson, that possibly the copy examined by Mr. Keynes, which must have been the copy that belonged to William Bateson, uh, had the first and last leaves missing. Geoffrey thought the need for a choir sequence a matter of opinion, and against Sampson's remark on, on his collation of the descriptive catalogue, noted that he had used the perfect copy in the original wrapper possible, remarked Geoffrey, for leaves to be stuck on with gum. Well, there are at least three possible answers to this problem. Um, the effect of Sampson's long report was that Geoffrey revised his plans almost completely, especially with regards to the illuminated books, and now concentrated on the distinctions of individual, precisely located copies. In October 1911, he had a brief questionnaire printed at the University Press to be circulated to everyone known to possess printed works by Blake both in England and in America. This single quarto leaf set out nine brief questions. Number of plates, number of leaves, watermarks, color of ink in which the plates were printed, coloring of the plates, their, addition, their arrangement of foliation, the nature and date of the binding, the size of the leaves, the provenance. Pretty simple stuff, uh, and of course, wouldn't leave very much space for description of the color. The information, however, thus gathered, was absorbed into the draft, and when in 1913 Geoffrey finally submitted his revised version to the Clarendon Press, Sampson found it much improved, if not yet perfect. Perhaps the weakest feature of Mr. Keynes's book is a tendency to lapse into aesthetic criticism or evaluation, which should be fought against by a bibliographer as a Christian fights against sin, or a scientist against sentiment. These feats are not for the likes of us say only that a new section of Blake's most amazing poem, The Everlasting Gospel, is of considerable interest and importance. It is about as adequate as though the same comment would be made of a retrieved ode of Sappho. At this point, the First World War intervened. As we shall see, it didn't stay Geoffrey's enthusiasm as a collector, but it did destroy any hopes that he may once have entertained of his bibliography of Blake being published by the Clarendon Press, which, under R. W. Chapman, the post-war years in considerable gloom as it contemplated a much-reduced market and very serious inflation. Geoffrey was still searching for a publisher of his bibliography in 1919. He'd started it in 1908. Um, and then, in September 1919, found unexpected help when he met William Ivins of the Metropolitan Museum at the family home of the Darwins, his wife's family in Cambridge and later on received the letter of inquiry from Ivins. There, most of the bibliographical text, the tale ends. With very considerable generosity, the Grolier Club gave Geoffrey virtually a free hand in the design and manufacture of one of the most magnificently produced bibliographies ever to have been published. The press work was finished by November 1921. Geoffrey signed his own name in his own copy in February 1922. Dunn and Blake had dominated the years before the First World War, and on them Geoffrey cut his bibliographical teeth. He summed up very many of his difficulties in the preface to Blake. It's difficult for an amateur bibliographer to arrive quickly at a standard form for his entries, particularly when, as in the present case, Blake, it has frequently to be changed to suit the varying nature of the material. I've already touched on the distinction necessary in approaching these two very different subjects. Both were to absorb him to the end of his life. The Blake collection was begun in 1908, the Dunn collection in 1911. (coughs) Of the other preoccupations of these earlier years, leaving aside A. E. Houseman, Hilaire Belloc, Henry James, Aubrey Beardsley, the first book by Thomas Fuller arrive in his library, and what became a very large collection of Thomas Fuller, seems to have been the Holy State in 1910. But he began to pay serious attention to Fuller only in 1916 or so, the year in which he also began to tackle, for the first time, John Evelyn, Samuel Butler, Jane Austen, and William Wordsworth. An income, as an army officer, gave him money for books, and they were one of the few consolations available in France. In October 1914, he wrote from Versailles only of Dunn and of Blake. With the deaths of his closest friends in 1915, Rupert Brooks was the best known, but was by no means the only one. He became noticeably depressed. And as Bartholomew, especially with sales help, help tried to distract him, booksellers' catalogues became increasingly important. They were irregular. But the acquisition in 1915 of Drayton's 1630 poems was so much of a triumph that it tempted him to try a bibliography of Drayton. By the end of the following February, however, he was set on John Evelyn. And we'll have another some more slides. And in a brief few days of leave, he had scoured the London shops the working hand of Evelyn's books, compiled by Geoffrey and by Bartholomew, was printed in an edition of 25 copies only, and was confined ostensibly to copies in three public collections, Um, in the University Library, the British Museum, and the Bodleian Library. And in this blow-up here, you can see how the collection developed. Uh, this is Geoffrey's handwriting of about 1916 or so, um, interspersed with pieces from bookseller catalogs, auction catalogues, and this is the way that they put together the bibliography that finally appeared in 1937. It was, in every sense, a working document, provided with plenty of space for annotation, and endowed with no bibliographical information at all. This might have given something away to the booksellers, I suspect, apart from the imprints, where they were known, and the formats, so far as they knew them. (laughs) It was very much a shopping list, for which Bartholomew acted as Geoffrey's agent. As I have just mentioned, Geoffrey's army pay gave him a new freedom to buy books. When I come back, with my 24 shillings a day and no expenses, I shall be unprecedentedly rich. Books will be cheap, and I shall have a wonderful haul of duns and blakes, everybody else being too poor to buy. Even long before the First World War, with relatively little spare money, he preferred books in contemporary condition to those which had been rebound. And there's that in the middle, it's the Dun devotion. for five shillings. After the war, many of the coppers which were inferior, bought in the previous 15 or so years, were to be sold off at Sotheby's as better coppers were found. As he accumulated his Evelyn collection in 1916 and thus was obliged to express his preference by letter to Bartholomew, he emphasized repeatedly how much he preferred generally to wait for a good copy rather than buy an inferior one immediately. This was a lesson he learned very hard before the First World War. Despite many of the booksellers bindings by Bedford or Zinsdorf held no attractions when on a 17th century book. Instead when necessary he had his own books rebound as conservatively as possible by a local binder in Cambridge. The consequences of this emphasis Wherever practicable, on contemporary condition, are to be seen on his shelves now, and they became more and more pronounced as he explored to Thomas Brown and John Evelyn, or later, went on to Hazlitt and to Jane Austen. And these. Um, which Geoffrey bought during the First World War. Not everyone, even in Cambridge, understood him perfectly. Considering the Reverend, it's surprising now to find how few books amongst Geoffrey's extant library can be shown to have been bought from this traditional treasure trove. It's very easy to spot books from the traditional treasure trove because the Booksellers' Code in Cambridge for David's Bookshop was an open secret in 1910 and it's still the same today. There were major finds, such as the Manuscript Miscellany of Dunn's poems now in the University Library. But generally speaking, the books bought there, and still in Geoffrey's collection, very important, were not by the authors to whom he gave most attention as a bibliographer. The 18th century novelists, Samuel Johnson and his circle, were more frequent um, than those with whom I've been principally concerned this evening. The Baskervilles from this source were by no means the most important. On the other hand, Geoffrey's collection of Thomas Buick and of the 19th century printer or publisher William Pickering's books prospered here. It would be unfair to ascribe to Geoffrey any long held opinion solely on the basis of that held in France in a letter written in April 1916. But it is an opinion borne out by the evidence now to be seen on the shelves of the University Library. David never knows when a copy. Is a decent one, or at any rate doesn't exercise any sort of judgment. I think most of us would be quite happy to buy that old calf there at a reasonable price. (laughs) Having formed his priorities as to condition, and here he was very much ahead of his time, Geoffrey then developed them only gradually. Although within a very short while he was usually to abandon the practice, for a time, in about 1917, he fell into the habit of buying books in 17th-century contemporary calf, which usually, of course, had blank spines, then having their spines lettered in gilt. Examples are now to be seen especially amongst the Duns and amongst the Thomas Browns. Bartholomew, more sensitive to condition, protested and therefore received a diatribe from Geoffrey, who reminded him that even the place where Bartholomew worked, Cambridge University Library, was not without sin. I am prepared to defend my lettering of old sheep at the point of the bayonet, wrote Geoffrey. It seems to me only reasonable to give the dear oldie things, lots of ease, a distinguishing mark so that one can pick them off the shelf without difficulty. If you've only got six, of course, there's no necessity. But then I am buying books on rather a large scale, to quote your measured phrase and surely I have the president of the university library to justify me it surprises me to find you the eminently reasonable the scorner of bibliographical affectation up against me in this matter I have to pardon the following sentence but this is what he wrote now if I had red and green labels plastered all over them or tore out the leaves and pissed on them a la rivière or you'd have some reason there's more to say than I can manage in a letter. He clearly thought it was time to stop. Bartholomew won, again, and in 1918, preserved in Geoffrey's copy of this book, the note of instructions sent off from France to the bindery in Cambridge. The book needed uh, was bound in 17th century calf and needed to be re so even Bartholomew's criticism might be muted. But Geoffrey's further instructions were wholly admirable. No end papers or other editions ad- will be wanted. This is written on the on a piece of paper tipped into the front. In nineteen twenty one, many of the best parts of Geoffrey's library were still to come. The Dobel manuscript of Dunn's poems, for which he knew Dobell had paid six shillings, was priced at a hundred pounds in nineteen sixteen, and was a tempting but unattainable prospect. Then it went finally to Harvard. In the Thomas Brown collection, Sotheby's had provided Elizabeth Littleton's presentation copy of Brown's Christian Morals of 1716. Dobell had provided Elizabeth Littleton's own commonplace book, which Geoffrey edited. The sale of Brown's 19th century editor Simon Simon Wilkins' library in October 1921 was to produce much more. The Drakert house sale of the following month produced books in just the kind of condition which Geoffrey most valued by Dunn, Thomas Fuller, Henry King, Rabelais. 1924, they say that the li- library of the 17th century, Daniel Fleming, was to provide the book trade with stock for Geoffrey's shelves for decades to come. For Geoffrey, bibliography and bibliophily were inseparable. He regarded his collection as a working library, and went about his collection with the same systematic dedication that he did his work as a surgeon. Of the great author collections, by which he became best known, many of them associated with the standard bibliographies. Most of William Harvey was collected very rapidly between 1924 and 1928, a couple of years after his Oxford monograph on the circulation of the blood and blood transfusion. It, the, this book has got a historical introduction which is entirely characteristic of Geoffrey in that it goes right back to the peculiar goings-on of the papacy in the um, pre-Harveyan days, about blood transfusion. Um, Hazlitt and Jane Austen had been started. Henry King was begun in 1924, William Cooper in 1927, Buick and Boyle in 1928 and 1929. Timothy Bright, the man remembered now chiefly as the author of the first book in English on shorthand, was begun in 1931, Francis Bacon 1932, Thomas Hooke in about 1936. George Barclay, though begun in the early 1930s, was mostly assembled after the Second World War. With the publication, however, in 1914 of John Donne, Keynes had become an authority. With Blake in 1921, he confirmed and enlarged his position in a startling way. His exploits in antiquarian bookshops were subject to the gossip columns even in 1917 in the national newspapers as the London trade pulled itself together to face his quest for John Evelyn. At its lowest level, his task was not only a bibliophilic or bibliographical one. It also charted rarity. When he began, there was very little available apart from Lowndes and Book prices Current. The short title catalogue appeared in 1926. Wing, for the later 17th century, was nowhere to be seen in the future. The 18th century short title catalogue, the 19th century short title catalogue, had not even been dreamt of. Cain's numbers were being quoted for done by the London booksellers in 1921. First of all, by Leighton. Uh, whose catalogues at this time are noticeably clearer than other London booksellers' catalogues for their bibliographical information. They might Bill and Garnet later on by Dobell Francis Edwards. It's notable that um, some of these firms uh, had very serious export interests as well by the end of the 1920s. In 1913, Geoffrey acquired his copy of Dunn's 26 Sermons with the imprint at the charge of Dr. Dunn in the job lot of the Dowden sale, and this is the Dowden sale catalogue of 1913, with the prices. In 1930, Dobell, of whom Geoffrey had been one of the very best customers by now for fifteen years or so, offered a copy of the same issue, priced twenty-five pounds. It said in the catalogue, This third volume of Dr Dunn's sermons is an exceedingly rare book. It occurs with three different imprints, and after larger capitals. The only other known copy with the above imprint is that in the possession of Dr G. L. Keynes. No wonder that Geoffrey had to face the wrath of the trade over his mistaken ordering of the first two editions of Brown's Religio Medici, on which he finally retracted in 1952. His bibliography of John Donne had become required reading. Blake, rather less regular in the trades, became so, and the others followed suit. Have lights, please. Um, they required reading for librarians as well as for booksellers, and for their respective subjects became the mainstays of the lists When the history of this century's institutional collecting is finally written, it will have to address itself to the degree in which priorities were formed by the existence of major or subject bibliographies. In that respect, Geoffrey's influence on 20th century librarianship and therefore via accessions policy on scholarship has yet to be measured. Geoffrey had learnt his methods from Sale, Bartholomew, and Sampson with the help of other friends such as Cosmo Gordon and Sir William Osler. He knew himself to be in the van better than Thomas James Wise, in whose bibliography of Wordsworth, published in 1916, he found a finished pattern of how not to make a bibliography. On a visit to Wise in 1917, he found the talk of Wise's enlarged prostate and his aunt's cancer merely irritating, and he came away in the feline mood. It's interesting to observe he wrote other people's methods, and of course Little Podgy Mr. Wise is reckoned one of the princes of the Cosmos Bibliographicus. But I fancy that's reckoning in terms of bullion rather than competence, isn't it? Geoffrey was getting more confident. Geoffrey's bibliography of Blake was still not then finished. And although he had tackled one author from the hand period, he had yet to begin work on those after about 1800. Jane Austen, Hazlitt, and abortively Thomas Love Peacock they were to present entirely different bibliographical questions again, relating to paper, to bindings, to the North American trade. So far, these were questions of of which he barely thought. Geoffrey's library is generally acknowledged to be one of the finest of its kind collected this century. Blake's paintings, drawings, separate engravings, illuminated books, have joined those of a host of others in the Fitzwilliam Museum, and the rest of Geoffrey Keynes's library is now kept as a collection in the Cambridge University Library. His great value is not only as a remarkable collection of collections, nor even as a library deliberately collected with an eye to contemporary condition, but also as the collection from which was contributed some of this constructed some of this century's most significant bibliographical and editorial work. Geoffrey's edition of Blake appeared in 1925, with Thomas Brown in 1928-31, and Rupert Brooke in 1946, here he is at work as a literary editor, while his various bibliographies have become touchstones for other editorial projects, especially in the 17th century. The bibliographies were constructed primarily from copies of books in the university library Jeffrey's nearest research collection, and from his own shelves. Despite the acknowledged importance of author bibliographies, not only in literary studies, but also in the study of the book, either as an artifact or as an object capable of provoking strikingly different perceptions, curiously little attention has been so far paid to the history of bibliographical description. For the 20th century at least, the Cambridge University Library is an ideal place to begin. Damn.